Wednesday episode post Christmas. How are you all doing? Those of you who celebrated Christmas, did you have a good time? How are you feeling? Is it all just over? Is it all crashing down around your ears? Or are you still in the festive spirit? Still got family to see, things to do, people to say hi to? Did you get any texts from exes? Ugh, they always come back. They're always like, how's your mum? How's little man and how's your mum? Fuck off, don't I? Do you care about my mum and my son, do you? Because if you did, you should have treated me better, you bastard. Anyway, let's forget this nonsense. Let's get in to everybody's problems and hopefully we can help them to solve them. The first question says... Hi, Lala. I'm someone who's been abused and gone through the questionable process of the justice system. I'm still dealing with PTSD from an assault in my own home a few years ago. I recently moved in with my new partner and one thing I'm really struggling with is a couple upstairs who are constantly shouting at each other. Sometimes it sounds intense, but never anything where I've been really concerned there's been a threat to life, though sometimes it sounds as if things are being thrown. From being in an abusive relationship, I know that this is a big red flag in terms of how it all starts. But how do I approach this when I know the police don't often take domestic abuse seriously? I'm so sorry that you had to go through a relationship like that. And I really hope that this new partner makes you feel safe and loved. And I can understand how difficult it must be to live in an environment where you're hearing the chaos of a turbulent relationship play out continuously within earshot. This is a situation in which two things can be true at the same time. One is if that you're hearing what sounds like domestic abuse from your neighbours or in any context, really, we should be encouraged to dial 999 at the time so that the police can come round and intervene while it's happening, especially if there are children in that house. It's all of our responsibilities to keep our fellow community people safe whenever we have the opportunity to. And one way in which we can do that is by calling for help for them. As you probably understand, I can't tell you the amount of messages that I get from women whenever I give this information to say that somebody called the police on their behalf when they were in the midst of being harmed and it saved their life. And actually what a lot of those women also say is that there were times when people called the police mid-argument or mid-attack and they didn't leave. They lied for their partner. They minimised what had been happening when speaking to the police. But they still appreciated and valued and had deep gratitude for the fact that someone out there was looking after them. So even if nothing happens as a result of that call, by calling, we could still be showing a survivor that someone cares, that someone has their back. It can give them a sense of safety. But what can also be true at the same time is that it's not your responsibility to get involved if, for some reason, it would feel scary, harmful, traumatic or dangerous for you to do so. If you're not at a point in your recovery from PTSD where making a call like that would not impact on you extremely negatively, then you don't need to compromise yourself by getting involved, especially given that what you're hearing doesn't sound life-threatening. If it did, I'd encourage you to take emergency action. It does sound like you want to do something about it. It's just that you feel like it's going to be a waste of time because you feel that the police don't take abuse seriously. 
And you know what? That's that's the fact. They're in literal evidence, sadly, that there are some police who are completely shit when it comes to domestic abuse. But the truth is also that there are some police who take it extremely seriously and who are absolutely fantastic. There will be people out there who had wonderful experiences with wonderful officers who helped to save their lives. There will also be a lot of people out there, far too many, who have had the most appalling and at times dangerous experiences with the police when it comes to domestic abuse. But we mustn't avoid calling the police because of that risk, because of the risk that they might do a bad job on that particular call. They're supposed to take domestic abuse seriously. They're supposed to have learned lessons from the many serious case reviews in which they could and should have prevented deaths or serious harm, but didn't because of their absolute incompetence. They are supposed to do something when you call. And the benefit of calling when it's just intense arguments rather than sounding like it's very violent is that you're potentially helping to intervene before things escalate. As you say, this is often how it all starts. So even if the police don't turn up or do turn up and get told to fuck off because it's just an argument between a couple, then at least there is a record of those calls. At least there is a record of those incidents. And there might come a time when whoever the victim in this relationship is needs help, needs to flee, needs to give proof to the council or to a refuge or to court that this has been going on for some time. And if they've never called the police themselves, they might not have the proof. But those records will be there and they will exist because you will have done that for them. The other thing that you could do in these circumstances, if they allowed for it, is if you see the woman at some point, I don't know how friendly you are with your neighbours, but perhaps you could say something discreetly and quietly and definitely without being in earshot of her home or her partner. But maybe you could say, I can hear you guys arguing a lot. Is everything okay? reach out and offer support. But maybe you don't want to because then maybe it would be more obvious, you know, if, if that, that it is you calling the police if you do call the police. It is a really tough situation, but if there are kids in the house, I would really urge you or your boyfriend to call the police every single time, regardless of what action you think they might take. And I would urge you to call the police if you do think things sound really scary. But I would also make sure that at all times you are putting your, yourself, you know, and your own safety first. The next question says. Hi, Lala. Um, I was introduced to a guy in March. He told me early on that he wasn't looking for anything serious. And I agreed to us being casual. I got too attached, though. Um, he stopped things as he didn't want to hurt me. We remained friends, but twice I convinced him that I could handle casual again, but then I got too attached again. It's uh, caused a couple of fallouts, including recently when I blew up at him saying he was using me, though I know he wasn't because he's been honest with me about what he wants. It's me that keeps lying to myself. I think he's forgiven me and I've accepted that he doesn't like me the way I like him and that I need to stop having sex with him. Thing is, though, I do generally see him as a friend. And earlier in the year, when I was struggling a bit, he was great support um, and also suggested I join the gym. He's been a massive support, praising me for my PBs at the gym, uh, giving me pep talks and general advice, etc. It seems a shame to lose all that. Is there any way you think we can become totally platonic now? I don't know. I feel like maybe you're lying to yourself a little bit. And don't worry, I'm not judging you for that because I have been here. I have been this girl. And Limerence was very much behind my behavioural choices in a situation like this, where I was trying to convince a man that we were really just great friends. 
And I was trying to convince myself of that too, when actually all I really wanted was for him to choose me. And I think that while you're at a point where you still would immediately say yes, if this man did turn around and say, I choose you, I'd now like to be in a relationship with you. I think until you are way beyond that point, it's probably not a good idea to continue your friendship with him. Do you feel like deep down you only want to keep the friendship there so that you remain in his life so that someday, if he ever does change his feelings, you are there right where you need to be in his line of vision to become his wife? Because that ain't going to work. Having a friendship with him means that you have to sit there watching while he chooses other people to potentially become his partner and to congratulate him on those personal bests. Is that what you want to do? To become his mate so that you can support him on his dating journey going forward? Is it worth it just so that you can get somebody congratulating you in the gym from going to 40 kilos to 50 on your squats? Because that's what being a mate means. And I think you're going to find that really difficult given your limerent history with him. You know, there are plenty of other people out there who can offer you that kind of support. The kind of friendship that he was offering is not particularly unique or special. You got something good from him. He suggested that you join a gym and you joined a gym and you enjoyed joining a gym. You don't have to be his friend for that enjoyment and hobby to continue. Take the advice and the support that he gave you and carry it through into your future without being his mate. Is he even pursuing your friendship? Is he contacting you and trying to make plans to go out and do platonic things together? Is he contacting you to find out how your day's been or to just chat to you about your gym stuff? Or would continuing this friendship involve you now sending him a text saying, hey, I know that whatever happened between us was really annoying, but I'd still really like to be friends. Because that is very limerent behaviour. Like, they're not even trying to chat to you. You haven't heard from them in two weeks since you last slept with them or had a big argument about them using you. And then you spend two weeks in turmoil, non-stop thinking about them, and then come up with this little plan in your head like, right, well, I'm just going to tell him that I just want to be friends now. Even though you don't need to tell him that you just want to be friends because he's not even trying to be your friend. But you just want any excuse to keep them in your life and continue having something to fucking communicate with them about. I've been there. I'm not judging you, as I said at the beginning. But it feels to me like that is what you're doing. So I would say it's not in your best interest to remain in this friendship. Though, if you can handle a proper friendship with no chance of it becoming anything, where you support him with his next dating endeavours, then fine. But I think you are always going to be hanging on to that hope. And I think when he moves on to other people, it's going to hurt. And I think the best thing that you could do now is free yourself. Block, delete, move on and find different friends. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, not, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. 
Hi guys, it's me and I'm here to tell you about another Sony Music Entertainment podcast. Now I know you all like to have a deeper look and get under the skin of a subject, otherwise you wouldn't be listening to me deconstructing hot topics and getting into the nitty gritty with all your dating dilemmas. So I think you're going to love getting curious with the fabulous Jonathan Van Ness from Queer Eye. Every week they deep dive into conversations with a variety of experts on some really, really important and eye or ear opening topics like the history of abortion and the science of sleep. Get excited, get curious and listen to Getting Curious wherever you get your podcasts. And the last one says, Hi Lala, I really need your help with how to speak to my daughter about touching herself privately. I started noticing that from about two years old, she would stretch out her legs in her high chair until she was red in the face. At first, I thought she was just uncomfortable, but thought nothing of it at the time. I then noticed that as she got older and didn't use the high chair, she would lay on her hands between her legs and do the same thing. So after a bit of Googling, I found articles that mentioned her doing it simply because it felt good and that it was pretty common for girls and to not shame her about it. So I began speaking to her about how it should only be done in her bedroom and how it's a private thing only for her and that no one else should touch her there, etc. However, she is now six and has started becoming a lot more vocal about it and it honestly makes me feel wildly uncomfortable. I don't want to pass on that feeling to her because I don't want her to feel weird or ashamed about it. But yesterday she called to me and said, Mom, when I watch things that have pregnant ladies in it, it makes my vagina feel weird. And I just don't know what to say. I was stunned and felt uncomfortable, so I just said, okay. Is this normal? I'm starting to worry about if she mentioned this to anyone else at school or how family members would react if she said something like that. I don't want her to feel embarrassed or like she can't talk to me about things, but I also want to be clear about what's appropriate to speak about with others, and I'm not sure how to approach the conversation. Any advice would be massively appreciated. Thanks, Lala. Talking to children can just be so incredibly tough, especially if we put all of our own adult understanding of sex and our adult thoughts and attitudes towards it. As adults, we see sex completely differently to how a six-year-old would. Six-year-olds who know about sex will know about it purely in pregnancy terms, usually. They will know that sex is what you have to create life, and that's usually about as far as it goes. It's when we think about pleasure that things become uncomfortable. You know, it's when we think about having sex as an activity for fun and not procreation that we start feeling awkward as adults having these conversations. We don't want our kids to think that sex is something that you do for fun. You know, we want them to fucking stay away from it for as long as possible. The issue for you is that the need to have these conversations with her have arisen from her self-pleasuring. So she's giving you no choice at the moment but to have discussions about pleasure. And it's not a bad thing. It's completely normal. Sexuality is more than just about the physical act of sex. It's about our identity and the relationship that we have with our own bodies too. It's about our sexual thoughts and feelings about ourselves as well as other people. And we are actually sexual beings from birth. Obviously not sexual in the context of other people, but we are able to feel sexual pleasure and have sexual fantasies. It's very uncomfortable for us as adults to cope with that concept, but your clitoris doesn't just switch on or the tip of your penis doesn't just switch on when you turn 16. We are capable of feeling those nice feelings throughout our entire lives. 
People hate talking about it because it's uncomfortable to have thoughts about children and sex. But we do kind of have to grow up and take all the shame and societal notions that we've been taught about sex and remember what it was like being a child. I used to watch videos of Mark Owen from Take That and rub myself on a pillow when I was about nine. And I remember feeling so deeply ashamed and embarrassed about it. Nobody taught me to do that or to feel that way. It came completely naturally. And any parent will know that it's completely natural for your son to just sit mindlessly on the sofa stroking his willy. They don't see it as like, oh, I'm sexually stroking my penis. It's not that. It just feels nice. When kids do it, they're not actually thinking about sex. I wasn't thinking about Mark Owen's penis at any point. I probably never even comprehended that he even had one, you know? It just felt nice and it felt good to look at him, you know? And it's the same for your daughter. The link to her feeling aroused by pregnant women may well be linked to her understanding of how that woman became pregnant, you know? She may be associating pregnancy with sex and sexual feelings, and that's okay. Your job, as you know, is to ensure that she never feels embarrassment or shame, whilst also ensuring that you keep her as safe as possible on her lifelong journey of sexual education and discovery. And the best way to keep children safe from abuse or harm is to give them the tools to keep themselves safe. And the best way to do that is to give them knowledge. Speak to her openly using the right language, which it, it sounds like you have been because she's already having those conversations with you, you know, describing feelings in her vagina. It's really good that she can approach you with those conversations using the right language. Always tell children the correct anatomical terms for their body parts. I've got an old, old podcast, not one of my Sony ones, not one of it's not you, it's them. It's called Lala's Old Podcasts. It's, I don't know how people find them anymore, but I, I, can, I can post this up. In my old CSE podcast, there is a discussion with a police officer um, who talks about creating a bubble around your child. And I really suggest listening to that and making sure that your conversations about sex education are constantly uh, backed up by conversations around who do we talk to? How do we keep ourselves safe? Who is allowed to touch us there? And the answer actually is no one. That was a really good point that he made in that podcast, which is not that, you know, mummy and daddy can touch you in the bath, but no one else can. No, if if, you, if daddy touches you, you don't keep that a secret. If mummy touches you, you don't keep that a secret. Nobody touching you is ever a secret. So work towards creating this bubble of safety around your child where they know that anybody in the family, in their lives can be an abuser and that nobody is allowed to touch them without your consent. And in terms of the worry that you had around her potentially saying something like that in front of relatives and them not knowing how to handle it, I would suggest talking to relatives about it so that they can respond in the correct way if she ever does say anything educate them too educate the people around her so that they react in the way that you want them to react if she does say something that they feel is shocking there are some really good books that I would recommend to you I will add that list of books to the show notes so you don't have to sit there scribbling it down those books will be a great starting point for you to feel more confident about what you should be saying to her but also to have those conversations with her there are, of course, times when children's sexual behaviour is worrying and it's really important to know what is normal and what isn't. 
And as social workers, what we do is we use the Brook Traffic Light tool. And that lists out green behaviours, which are sexual behaviours that are expected of children of that age group. So the, the Traffic Light tool looks at like 0 to 5, 5 to 9, 9 to, I'm not sure if it's 14, can't remember what the older ones, and then 14 plus. But it looks as at what is a green behaviour in that category, what is an amber one, which means we need to pay attention to it. And red behaviours is obviously where we're really worried that actually this child has been exposed to sexual harm. So if you do get worried and, and you're thinking, is this normal? Have a look at the Brook Traffic Light tool. It is designed for social workers and professionals working in the field, but it's still a useful tool for you to have a look at. Have a look at those books, get them for her, read them with her, up your knowledge. Listen to my sex education podcast where I go a bit more deeply into why I think it's really important to keep educating our children about sex. But really, knowledge is power. Prepare her for the world. Give her as much information as possible and keep keeping her safe in the way that you are. Okay, so what have we had? Sex education, not knowing what to do about your neighbours and definitely not having platonic relationships with people who you are limerent for so there we go another free in the bag for another week come to my page at la 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 let me explain where we will be discussing one of these and if you would like to submit your own send it to a different insta page at ask la 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 let me explain and i will see you on friday for a whole new episode Bye. La la la, let me explain. This has been a Sony Music Entertainment production.